Welcome guys to the Google Podcast. My name is Rob Watson and in today's show I'm speaking with Brian Penny. He is an author, speaker, PhD candidate, university lecturer and life change strategist, spending his time educating people on psychology and neuroscience. Yet his life hasn't always looked this rosy as for many years an addiction to heroin shaped much of his life. So his story of surviving the worst and discovering the magic of every day is one that I'm really excited about hearing today. So first of all, thank you, Brian, for uh, coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Rob. I'm really, really, really excited. The, the little chat we, before, we had beforehand, I'm, I'm, I'm super keen to get this going. Yeah, great. And um, one thing I said straight away at the beginning was to say to people, it's like how, like, and I'll share the pictures as well when I share the podcast, literally your before and after pictures. It's like, what a transformation. It's like, literally looks like you're a completely different person. And in a way, it's almost that before after before thought it looks like as if you you know that's got 20 years on top of you maybe more 30 years and now yeah so it's um, I'd love to just hear a little bit more then about your story because it sounds incredible from where you've come from and where you are now yeah I, I, won't, I won't go too far I won't go too into the depths of the, of the, of the details of it, but for me um, look I was a heroin addict for 15 years and um, what, what I've realized, especially in writing my book, writing my memoir last year, where I dug deep into a, into a lot of topics and I dug deep into the feelings and, and, and a lot of it, I interviewed my family, chat to my family about that. And what, what it really came from childhood trauma for me, like anxiety drove my addiction. Like I never, I, I, I don't believe I had a heroin problem or an addiction problem. I had an anxiety problem and I medicated anxiety with heroin. Now, it probably seems a bit strange. What the hell would someone, why would you medicate? Would you not use um, anxiety medication or alcohol to what normal people do? But I had, I had an experience very early uh, in my life. Actually, I was only a week or two old and I had, I had a, a condition known as intestinal malrotation. So it actually came out of my mother's womb with, with twisted guts. That's what it is in layman's terms. So there was, there was a lot of complications. The, doc, the hospital didn't know. They misdiagnosed me several times. I lost half my birth weight. They were telling me, they thought my mom was mad. She, she knew something was wrong and she kept on bringing me back to the hospital. They were saying, it's only colic, it's only colic. But when they weighed me after a couple of weeks, they realized that I wasn't getting, I nearly lost half my birth weight, more than half my birth weight. And he says, oh my God, this is really, really serious. So I was rushed into surgery. And I knew I had this operation, but it was only while writing the book and doing research on the book, and lots of people find this extraordinary, that back in 1978 and up until 1985, the medical practice did not believe that infants experienced pain like normal people. And they went under general, they went under operations under the knife without a general anesthetic. So I basically had a big operation without a general anesthetic and from complications from that surgery after that, for the next year I had complications and I was never given any pain medication. So but I've since done a degree in psychology, I'm doing a PhD in psychology as well now. And what I've learned is from a basic learning mechanism as an organism, I learned to fear the world. I associate the whole world as, as, as a dangerous place. And I think that's where my anxiety grew. So then I came, I came from a very challenging environment as well, I suppose. I, I mean, I've had a loving family, but alcoholism was in the family as well. And I have a lot of memories looking at my mum and dad getting drunk and seeing them drink driving and stuff like that. And I was a very... I, I, was a, I was a tinker. I always it was a compulsive tinker, tormented by anxiety. That's my childhood that I remember. And I, I, I was I was just, I was just my mind basically drove me mad. Now I think that was sort of driven by the childhood trauma, but it just sort of escalated from there. 
And I remember when I messed around with uh, alcohol and drugs and stuff in my early teens, and it felt brilliant, it felt amazing. And we says we'll do heroin once for because I didn't think myself that I'd ever be an addict as such. And but we were in the Jim Morrison at the time, and a gang of us says, "I oh, would try it once," and a few of us tried it once. But I'll never forget that first night. I wrote about it in the book. It's a whole chapter in the in my book dedicated to this night called "Falling in Love," and it was literally like a warm blanket wrapped around my soul, protecting me from anxiety, the comparison of what I was like. And from that moment, I believe I, I was hooked. I wasn't physically hooked, but that, that was me. And it set the stage for the next 15 years of my life uh, as an addict. Wow. And um, when you talk about that, then talking about the early trauma, it, it makes me think about, and I think I've heard you talk about it in other podcasts about the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And yeah. to think yeah. if you're such a young baby and you to think that babies don't experience pain, and then, that, you know, you're, so you're storing all that up in your body. hundred percent. There's a lovely line I heard a while ago. It's like, congratulations, you survived the war. Or you, you survived the war, now live with the trauma. So it's like, you got through the operation, now live with the trauma. And I always, I always think like, they, I, they, never, they never gave that baby the anesthetic who needed the anesthetic. And I was looking for that anesthetic all my life, trying to struggle, struggle with anxiety. It was still in my body. The body kept the score. And when I found heroin at 17, I found the anesthetic that I was looking for all my life. And although I'm not, I'm not saying like I didn't have a chance, I didn't have a choice. It was a very difficult choice because it just, it, it took that bodily, bodily pain away. It took that trauma away. And hearing your story and how you've obviously transformed, but I think people hearing it can have more empathy with, say, you see a lot more people who are homeless, who are addicted to drugs. And you think it's not, sometimes people can just cast them away and say, oh, well, be very judgmental, but actually to realize what they've been through and the trauma that they've been through, maybe they didn't have an opportunity to express how they were feeling. They grew up in a completely different, in a broken home, all these different things. And when you can see that, you do start to think, God, you know, um, you can understand really, really can begin to understand. You really can. There's, there's a guy over in, in Ireland, actually, I won't say his name in case I, I'll implicate him in the story as well of, of what, what that's happened to, but he works, he works in prisons, he works in prisons, he does a lot of great charity work, and he was doing a mindfulness intervention with, uh, with a guy in a prison, and he said to the fellow, so close your eyes and take a few deep breaths. And the guy says, oh, I'm not really comfortable around people closing my eyes and breathing like that. And he says, why? And he says, oh, well, I was sexually abused when I was younger, and it just brings me back to that. So this guy was in prison for drug use to, to cope with the fact that he was sexually abused as a kid. Like, he should not be in prison for drug use. He should be, in a, he should be getting help for psychiatric difficulties, like, you know? So it's crazy when you think of where people came from. Like, they, they might be there using drugs, and it doesn't look good, well, you've got to think of the history. I think the history is really important. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think then about maybe, I know you're in Ireland and the UK and stuff, what do you think of their approach to actually dealing with people who have actually got addiction? It's a, see, do you know what, Rob? It's a really, 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 really difficult one because like, I, 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 I consider myself, a lot of people say, oh, you're very brave, you're this, that, and the other. Like, I got out of addiction and I'm doing well for myself. I say, I'm very lucky. I'm just very lucky. I, I, I had a shift in perspective and I just seemed to view the world as a very different place. It was like, it was like, it was like an, a roller coaster came along. I jumped in and it took me along for the ride. I got lucky. I really did get lucky. And I'm really, I'm really, I have to put that forward. 
But for most people in addiction, it's like, it's so hard. Like if, if you get out of addiction, then you have to change your environment to stand a chance. But it's very difficult to change your environment because you haven't got the money. Lots of people in addiction and haven't got the education to, to, get, to get themselves out of that way as well, to get into a job. So it's a lot of the stigmas behind that. Then there's mental health issues that are underpinning that as well. That's driving the addiction. Like psychologists don't like working with people with a mental health issue and an addiction because it's so difficult to get to the bottom of because it's so complex. So it's, it's, it's really difficult. This is the thing, like I get emails off people and they think I can sort of write an email and fix and, and, and the answer to someone in their family and, and help their family member through any couple of emails. And I'm like, I, when I got out, my brothers were struggling with addiction and I couldn't help them in the space of a few years. They had to find their own path. So it's very difficult. We can put out the help to these people. We can plant seeds and we can put, I think, more policies in place and more measures in place to help them at a more basic level to make sure they have food, shelter and these kinds of things and education. But it's very difficult otherwise. And it's, it's an unfortunate answer, but it is the truth. Yeah. I've, um, I've watched um, a few podcasts with this guy. I can't remember his name, but he's on a Joe Rogan. And he, he was talking about the approach in Switzerland, how... Um, they will kind of really look after them. And I, I don't know whether they're actually, you know, it's heroin-assisted treatment. I think it is in Switzerland, which, and they'll do it for so many decades with, or with them, or that's how long the program's been running. And since it started, there's only a few that are still on the program that still require it. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, you see the damage it can do to families and people yeah. who are addicted to it, you know, the, the stealing. The, the trouble, you know, can really cause. But obviously, you know, when you when people are addicted to something, it's almost, you know, it's not really their fault. And yeah, yeah, yeah it's it, it's really it's really crazy. And it's 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 a strange one. Like, there's a chapter in my book called "I Don't Care," and it's I literally didn't care about my family, about how my mother felt. I I got my mother to come on drug deals with me. I I I was selling drugs to fund my drug habit. I brought I put my mother and my sister in danger while I was selling drugs just to give them a lift. Like I literally didn't care. And you could say like that. I I, I don't I don't like saying myself. I didn't have a choice. There's always some form of choice there. I think at the end of the day, but in that moment. It wasn't me. It wasn't Brian, the person who looks in the mirror right now that was that was taking them actions. I just had to do anything to get them drugs. To, to like, well, I wasn't even trying to sell drugs. I was just trying to get money to buy drugs. I needed to feel that feed that habit that I had. And it gets to a stage, a level of addiction where you just don't really care about anything or anyone, and you will step over anyone to get what you want. And it's 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 really difficult. And I think that's where the stigma comes from then as well, because people see that. The, the terrible things that happen within that. And it's very, I, I just suppose it's very difficult to be empathetic to someone when you're seeing the, da- the damage that they can cause as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So how, at what point then, or what was the trigger that made, finally made you think, like, I need to, you know, I need to change here. You know, life can't go on like this. Yeah, so for me, and for anyone listening as well, it's really important to recognise, like, so I was a very functional addict as well, even though I was a heroin addict for 15 years, the stereotypical heroin addict people might think is on the streets, injecting in street corners and stuff like that. But I was actually a functional addict for nearly, for most of that time, I held down a job, functional for the best part, a lot of people wouldn't have called me very functional, especially near the end. But I held down a job for a lot of time as well. But it got to the end, near, near, near the end for me, I lost my job, I lost my health, I lost, you could see in the pictures, you said I lost every bit of health, I lost my mind, and I lost every important relationship in my life. 
and it got to the stage where I couldn't, I, I couldn't, um, I lost my job as well, so I had no way of funding my drug habit. I couldn't even, like, drug dealers would not even give me drugs to sell to other addicts anymore because I didn't, I wasn't reliable. I didn't look like someone that was reliable, so I had no way of making money, and I had huge debts to money lenders, to drug dealers, so I had no way of making money, and I just said there was no... I always tried to protect me addiction. My ego was all about protecting me addiction. That was the story that I told myself. Like, I cannot cope with anxiety. I need heroin to survive. But that story was breaking down because I couldn't, I couldn't get drugs anymore. I couldn't make money anymore to get drugs. So I remember for the first time in my life, I was saying, right, I, I need to get help here. I need to try to get clean. I need to... I was thinking of giving up some drugs, but in my head I needed some other drugs because I needed to cope with anxiety. I, I, just, I, I fundamentally believed I could not survive in the world with the anxiety that was the, I, I thought I had a special kind of anxiety that was different and worse than anyone else's. Another story I told myself to, to, to give me an excuse for my addiction. But um, so I said to myself, right, I'm gonna have to get clean, I'm gonna have to do something here. And I, I tried to get into a professional unit, a detox center. And they actually told me I was taking heroin, I was taking all sorts of drugs, downers mostly, benzodiazepine, sleeping tablets, lots of different drugs. And because it's so many benzodiazepine, which are Xanax and anxiety tablets and stuff like that, I, I, benzodiazepine is a drug that makes you have seizures. And I was at risk of having a seizure and the detox facility didn't want people at risk of having seizures. It was too much of a, a, an insurance risk, basically. So they told me that I'd have to wait until they came out of my system. I had another option of another facility that I could do a detox off the benzodiazepine, but I'd have to wait eight weeks to get in. But there was something in me being, something in me car driving me just saying, you need to do this now. You're not going to survive this. You need to do this now. You need to act now. You need to get into that. You need to give this a shot right now. You're going to die. And I remember just saying to, uh, right, I'm going to do a detox at home. I was going to do a benzo detox at home. And I was warned not to do it. I was warned to wean off them. But I said, no, I need to do this. The special addict in me still thought that I wouldn't have a, a, a seizure, the, 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 the problem that, that might have happened. And I remember doing, uh, doing the benzo detox at home. And two days into that detox was not only what I call the most painful night in my life, it was also the most important night in my life. And I woke up and we sitting around the floor and there was blood everywhere. And what had happened was I had, I wasn't a special addict. I did have a grand mal convulsive seizure. So what happens when you have a convulsive seizure? It's like every neuron in your, in your brain fires at the same time. It's like a cascade effect. It's just this fire going across your brain. And it's just all the neurons are firing. So all sensory, sensory neurons, motor neurons. So that's where the convulsions happen when you see someone having a seizure. So happened to me i actually driven my teeth through the center of my tongue through the seizure and that's that's where the blood was coming from so i always rub my tongue anytime i talk about this it brings back the, the body keeps the score and it always brings back the memory but um basically I, that's why i woke up on the floor blood everywhere and me poor brother my younger brother was minding me during detox he thought i was dead he rang me dad says i think brian's at the dying from the detox he wasn't in, in, into drugs really at that time kinds of drugs at that time and um, fortunately for me, I wasn't dead. And my family, after tormenting them for years, they rallied around me in my time of need, called an ambulance. I was out of it. I don't remember much of that moment. I was brought to the hospital. And I don't remember much of that night, or flashes of that night, but I vividly remember waking up in the hospital several hours later. And I was in a room on my own, sitting on a trolley. And I remember, I'll never forget the sensations in the hospital, the, the bodily sensations. I remember just the, 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 the smell of disinfectant. It was like sickly sweet disinfectant mixed with a smell of vomit as well. It was sort of making me 
feel nauseous. And then it's the taste of the metallic blood in the mouth as well. I just felt so nauseous. The, 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 um, the, the color of the walls, so these orange walls. And any time I think back to, back of it to this day, it's like they haunt me. The color of these walls haunt me. And this light flickering in the corridor. And I just remember being in that room, lying on the trolley, and I wanted to jump out of my skin. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to run away from myself because I was in high withdrawals from benzodiazepine. And I, all I was taking was methadone at that time because I was told to stay on methadone to get into the proper detox facility. And I, like the, the opposite of it, basically when you take a drug, you're, you're, you're taking the drug to help you with it. Like if you feel anxious, it's helping you not to feel anxious. But withdrawal is basically the opposite of that. It's the reverse of that. So it's like a spring being pushed together tighter and tighter and tighter. So when you're in withdrawal, it's just an unleashing of that spring. So I was feeling like just tremendous amounts of anxiety and I just wanted to run away from myself. So I remember just trying to, I had no strength. I was broken emotionally, mentally, and psychologically in every way. And I just tried to pull myself up off the trolley. I mean, I was just fixated on this fire extinguisher on the wall. It was like I was in a trance, drawn into the moment with this tunnel, tunnel vision on this fire extinguisher. And I remember looking at it and saying, that's a fire extinguisher. And I, I was trying to turn away and I just went back and says, that's the color red. And I said, no, it's red, red fire. And I, I couldn't put the concept together and say, that's a red fire extinguisher. And I remember looking around the room and sort of looking at other objects in the room. It was like my verbal world didn't make sense anymore. It was like concepts didn't go together, colors and the names of things and objects, nothing went together anymore. And I, I, the best way I can describe it was like links of a chain that I knew should have fit together well, but they were all, they were all separated and I didn't know how to put them back together. And I remember just saying to myself, oh my God, that's brain damage. Game over, man, you're screwed. And I remember just waiting for this, the, the panic attacks, the anxiety that I struggled with all, all my life, with the fear. I was waiting for this to be overwhelmed by this. All of a sudden, I just lay back on the trolley and I says, I can't do this anymore. I give up. Game over. I'm done. I surrender. And, and in that moment, I believe, was the mo was it, that was the moment that transformed my life. I stopped fighting with reality. There's a great line by Byron Katie, if you argue with reality, you will suffer. I was arguing with reality my entire life. I was fighting with my mind, the ego keeping my story alive, the narrative of my life to stop, to, 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 to keep my addiction alive. And I think that was the moment when I just says, I give up, I'm done. I cannot do this anymore. And that was really a gateway into me changing my life. That was the moment I believe that, that changed my life. Wow, that's amazing. When I hear you talk about that, it's particularly the end bit, it reminds me when I listen to, say, Eckhart Tolle, talk about his transformation where he was living homeless for years in London. He was trapped in his mind, his story, his identity. And then yeah. almost like, I think it did appear like it was literally in, in a moment's notice, like this awakening. And everything that he just started to see around him was alive and beautiful, like he'd never seen it before because he didn't have the old conditioned narrative just repeating the same stuff over and over from childhood. And it sounds like yourself, you know, with a lot of trauma from those young years and the drug addiction, there was just so much. But it sounds like you found, found peace. So what, when was that? How, how long ago was it? That was that. So that was the eight. That was that would have been August two thousand and fourteen. So nearly we're nearly up to seventeen years ago. It's August now. August yeah, August uh, two thousand and fourteen. 
But very similar, so Eckhart Tolle, I'd be a huge fan of Eckhart Tolle and his, his work really, well, when after I got clean, really resonated with me. Now, I didn't have as a transformation as clean and as beautiful as Eckhart Tolle, but I definitely had some kind of a transformation as well because I, I, I went back, I spent another month uh, at home on my own, on, on, lying on my couch, uh, waiting for the benzos to come out of my system. I had a few more seizures, a few more hospital visits, but they, when they were finally out of my system then, I was allowed to go to the, to the detox facility. Then I spent five weeks in detox, getting off methadone in the detox facility. But on the 8th of October, that's the fourth day clean, 8th of October, 2013, that's when I sort of, the completion of it, of a, the perspective shift that I call it, that I kind of had. And I remember I was on a farm and I remember walking out to that farm that morning and it was like what Eckhart Tolle describes, as I said, not as clean as his, but it was like nature was just breathing on me. It was like I could smell, hear, touch, feel everything like I'd never experienced it before. And it was just like an energy came into me life. I, I remember looking at things, life used to be very hollow and now everything's staying full of depth. And it was just this beautiful energy to come into my life. And I was filled with this curiosity to learn, this curiosity for life and human psychology and suffering and stuff like that. I wanted to learn about these things. And that's really where my life started on that date. That, that's my new birthday, the 8th of October 2013. I love it. Um, so you're only seven years old then? Only seven years old. <laughs> and I go on like a child at the best of times, so it fits. <laughs> So take me on from that point then in, in 2013, what, um, obviously um, your life's turned around magically, but what were the steps, those early steps to sort of pushing you in the direction you've gone in? Yeah, the early steps, the first early steps was, was really around, was, it was an intense curiosity to learn. So I'd never heard about Eastern philosophy, Buddhism, any of these things. I, I may have heard about mindfulness. I can't say that I did. I couldn't remember, but I was introduced to all of these concepts in detox and in the subsequent treatment center where I was. Now, they were telling me to slow down. They were saying, it's all about AA. It's all about fellowship. It's all about, and trying to bring me back into more of reality stuff. But I started to know something profound had happened to me. And I just, I had this awareness. It was like, it was like, oh my God, why didn't anyone tell me what I was doing with my life? It was like this, this beautiful realization that I was literally throwing my life away. And there was this tune going in my head. It was like, wow, you have a life again. So I knew I was going to grab this with everything I had. And I, I really dived deep into the spiritual stuff. So I, 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 I began, um, I, I, I meditated from that day and I've meditated always since I learned about meditation. It's a really important practice. I start learning about gratitude. I start learning about visualization, affirmations, and I start eating all these books and spirituality, self-help, personal development, all of these different tools. But it was the big part of it for me was, and I know many people read this stuff, but the one big change for me was, and I, I really put it down to my addiction. It was nothing special about me. It was like I took my addiction to heroin and other drugs and I got the hooks of that and I stuck it into personal development. But I was willing to put the action in as well. I was very action oriented. So I meditated every day. I've done visualization every day. I practiced gratitude every day. I read every day. I showed up every single day. And it was really like a compounding effect of that just really helped me in recovery. And I just had a, it, it was a, that continued with that transformation. And I suppose that really drew me onto the area of psychology. Like I had a deep interest. I, I, I remember doing, doing a meditation and treatment actually. And there was this realization that they were saying, right, thoughts will come into your mind and thoughts will live. And I remember waiting for me thoughts to come into my mind. And I was saying, I was just like, wow, 
It was just this stillness that was there in my mind. And I had this sudden realization, my mind has been so busy my entire life. It was so busy that I didn't even realize it was so busy because there was no even space to see how busy it was. And that, that got me wondering, right, if my mind went quiet, because I didn't struggle with anxiety anymore. So I was thinking if my mind went quiet and anxiety left me, what's the relationship between thinking the stories we tell ourselves and emotions and feelings and anxiety? So I really got interested in psychology and I wanted to do a degree in psychology, which I subsequently done a couple of months later. I started a few months later. And I'm still on that, I'm still on that, um, that journey, exploring the nature of self-talk, emotions. And I do an online course around the Master Your Self-Talk because I really think that feeds our feeds emotions, like our, 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 our self-talk and the stories we tell ourselves. Language is a vehicle for emotion. The science shows that. And I really dived into the depths of that. I done my degree in psychology and now I'm doing a PhD and all of this kind of stuff as well. So that was the path that it brought me on. But it was an intense curiosity and another, another important point as well was that I really followed my passion. I, I had a diary and detox and a lot of family members, when I got clean, were sort of saying, I'll go back to a job that you know, play it safe, do this, do that. And they were playing by societal norms out of fear and out of love and fairness. But there was something deep inside of me just saying, now follow your passion. You've got to live it. Follow your passion and go for that. Go with your gut. And my gut was screaming loud and clear, which I'm very grateful for. So I went back to college, done that degree, and that set me off on a beautiful path since then. I, I just love what I do right now. Incredible. Amazing. One thing um, that comes to my mind as well, taking you back to 2013 when you had the, you know, the awakening is when you hear about people who have near-death experiences and in that moment, it's almost, um, you know, they get, you almost get a choice. It's like, okay, it's either I'm, I'm checking out now or now's my chance to really live my life. And there's a book I read a while ago and probably around about that time, 2013, by Michael Talbot, which is the holographic universe. And he would talk about all the extra, um, so like extraterrestrial life, but also extrasensory abilities. He would talk about oh. quantum physics, physicians. Um, and he, he did a whole thing on near-death experiences and stuff and, and how consistent they all were. Like, for instance, people could be out cold, had a heart attack. They were in the hospital and they were literally above the body down viewing yeah. themselves why the doctors and nurses are literally trying to resuscitate them and they're able to observe it all and in one of the stories the guy goes out of the hospital goes up to like the eighth floor looks in sees someone else but then on the windowsill he sees this pair of trainers and then he comes back down and obviously they brought him back and he's back in his body and then about a day or two he comes back out and he's just got this amazing smile on his face and the nurse comes in and and he tells the story to the nurse, and the nurse like you know doesn't believe it. But he says to the nurse, "Please just go up to the eighth floor and have a look." Wow. I'm getting shivers here. <laughs> and the nurse goes up to the eighth floor, looks out in the mirror, and on the on the windowsill is that pair of trainers. So wow, you know, this guy's not been in this hospital before. Little known as he's been on the eighth floor looking out. And there's yeah. loads of stories like that in the book, which just shows that life is so much more magical than we can imagine. And it sounds like almost something like that has happened, you know, to you where it could have really good, like you said, you know, your brother said, we think we might have lost Brian, you know, but actually you turn it around from that point. And since that point, you've like, okay, I've had a second chance at life. And you've gone through all these different stages of just this radical approach to just improving yourself, but also helping others. And it feels like that's one thing that's 
runs through my podcast with people I talk to is they've got this real uh, purpose behind what they do and actually to help others. But realizing when you're helping others, you're helping yourself as well. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I can relate to all of that, Rob, as well. I think purpose is something that is really underrated. I'm always going about value. I think our, our, our values drive or should be driving our decisions. Like you need to know your values so you're making the right decisions in life. But then it's the purpose that gives you that energy to drive you forward. Like I have a very, I have a very um, purpose. I'm very clear about my purpose. It's with a relentless belief that we are what we think. My purpose is to show people that change is possible demonstrating actionable steps through a lived experience. So what, what I've done, although I'm in academia and I'm doing the PhD, my real passion in life is really collecting these tools, tactics and habits for life. I've developed a program for life, which I've developed myself around all of this stuff that I've read. And I, I, I implement these tactics in my own life and then I share them with other people. And that is my purpose in life because I know these tactics work. I know these tools work. I know these spiritual practices work. And it's really just trying to get people to engage with this stuff because so many people are struggling and the answers are out there. But it's just getting them to flick that switch and getting them to engage in this work because you can, you can be happy. You can have a happy life if you, if, you, if you start. No matter what your standpoint, you can have a happy life if you implement these tools. Well, you definitely proof that, you know, you can transform your life. You know, you went to the absolute depths, you know, and then and brought it, swung it right back like a massive pendulum shift. Um, I, I would like to touch on then some of these um, techniques and rituals and that you, you know, you build around your courses, your books, um, yeah. to sort of help people thinking like, you know, what could they potentially introduce in their lives? Yeah, and for me, so so the, the the program I developed for my own life, it was literally just started off by reading in detox, reading all these different things about spirituality. Then I start, then I start reading about uh, different sort of personal development books, and it'd be like uh, psychology books, and then I learned the, the the power of values and principles and tactics in life. And then I, then I start reading all about more more coaching kind of stuff around goal setting and all of these more time management tools as well. So we program over time as really sort of it's 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 a three step platform. It's really at the very bottom, the foundations are stuff like building self awareness, mindfulness, self observation all of these kind of gratitude, all of these really more spiritual practices. I don't like the word spiritual. I go more sort of building self-awareness practices. And I think they're, they're the foundations of the program. I think on the next level after that is around values and principles. I'm very clear on my own values in life and um, principles are the actionable steps that guide us towards our values as well. So I have a whole system around that as well. And then on the top floor of that will be these tools, tactics, habits, life hacks, I suppose people call them as well. And it's just that they all sort of get there, they're more tangible in the real world. So that's sort of the program I have developed. And to give a couple of takeaways, so what really works for me and for anyone struggling with anxiety, because I know anxiety is so prevalent for people out there. So mindfulness is brilliant. I teach the neuroscience of mindfulness here in Ireland in one of the universities, and um, I've practiced mindfulness for years. But many people either haven't got time for a mindfulness practice or they think they don't have time for a mindfulness practice or they basically just really struggle with mindfulness. Like they might be very anxious and when they try to go quiet and within themselves, they really struggle with it. So what, what I'd say to people is like you can introduce sort of micro meditations into your life. Like just, just when, you, when, you, when you're brushing your teeth, mindfully brush your teeth. Like you can do little, little tools and tactics like that. But the, the biggest one for me in my life, like I do practice mindfulness, but a big one for me is mindful self-observation. 
So it's something that, like, from Eckhart Tolle, from Anthony DeMello, another book called Awareness that I absolutely love. They were me two Bibles. And they put a great emphasis on self-observation, to be the observer of the thinker, because you're not the thinker, you're not your thoughts. You are the observer of your thoughts. You can't take a step back and observe that. You can't take a step back and observe your feelings, and you can take a step back and observe your bodily sensations. So a good way to, 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 for me to describe this, I think, or to understand it myself, this is how I got, got an idea into this was, when I was an addict and I looked at the mirror, I thought like an addict, my thoughts were like an addict, I felt like an addict, full of anxiety, and I looked like an addict physically and the bodily sensations of an addict. But when I look in the mirror today, I don't think like an addict, I don't feel anxious, I don't feel like an addict, and I don't look like an addict. But the same person is still looking in the mirror. Now, I can observe, so the, the same person that looks in the mirror, that's like the true self, the I, where the self is more the constructive self, who we think we are. Brian, and my story was, I have anxiety, chronic anxiety, I cannot cope with life. That was my story. The thoughts and my feelings were all embedded within that. But I can, t I can actually be the observer of them thoughts now, because I, I still get anxious these days, especially now public speaking. Anxiety will come across my chest, and the thoughts will be, oh, you might make a show of yourself. But as the observer of that, I take a step back and I observe them thoughts and I say, oh, there you are, thinking you're going to make a show of yourself. There's the anxiety coming into your chest. But I observe it without engaging and I let it pass. And a great metaphor for this is really like clouds floating through the sky. So like me looking in the mirror, that's the self, the true self. And in, with the clouds in the sky, that's the blue sky. So the blue sky observes the clouds going across the sky. Sometimes they're dark and angry, like bad feelings and bad thoughts. Sometimes they're light and fluffy, like happy thoughts and happy feelings. But the clouds always pass, always pass. Everything passes, good and bad. But if you don't take a step back and be the blue sky, be the observer, watch them coming and watch them going without engaging within them thoughts, you, will, you, you neutralize the power of these feelings and you neutralize the power of these thoughts and you don't get caught up in your own mind. And this is the biggest, possibly the biggest tool in my life is mindful self-observation. So I mindfully observe my thoughts and my feelings and it's a very, very powerful state to be in because when I get hijacked by that stuff and I become the observer, I'm able to react in a rational manner and let it pass. And it's a very, to have that in my toolbox is a very, is a very strong place to be in psychologically, I feel. That's a beautiful analogy about the clouds and the blue sky. And when you say that, it reminds me of, you know, people carrying around baggage all their life. You know, we have these metaphors like a weight on our shoulder carrying all yeah. this baggage. And it's like as if people are walking around with suitcases full of these dark clouds and yeah. it's just each of them stories, each of them things have just been told over and over. Because they say, um, you know, is it something like 95% of our day is almost programmed from our, you know, our past learned experiences. So yeah. if we're just going to repeat yeah. that over and over, so you can see how that kind of just can snowball and snowball. And you can see people to a certain point. You can almost see it maybe in some older people, like they're, they're almost really... Um, like crooked and stiff and tense. It's like as if it's, it's really worked its way through the body. It's like the body keeps the score. We're back to that. Like you can see it in them. You can see the anxieties in them, the stresses in their bodies, in their faces. Like it's crazy it is. But you can let that stuff go. And I think the observer tool is really, really powerful for that. I remember hearing something. I think I can't remember the name of the guy, but he's the one who does EFT and tapping. And he says that um, you know, we think that a moment of trauma 
It happens in an instant, but for some reason we carry it in a lifetime. But actually, he says, if it happened in a moment, we can also release it in a moment as well. If we can, if we can have that observation and that that potential to release it, you know. And um, yeah. Yeah, I've experimented with tapping and EMDR therapy and stuff like that. Yeah, the eye movement, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. the eye movement, and it's that you know. To the normal rational mind, you'd be thinking, how can that possibly work? But, but it does. It goes in on another level to, to rewire. Yeah. Um, and I think we briefly spoke before, didn't we, about, um, before we started chatting about Bruce Lipton. And just open us up to this new awareness. I think when we grow up, we're told a particular narrative around the world that it's solid, it's 3D. You know, your DNA, you know, lineage from your family, you know, it kind of gets gets you conditioned to feel like you can't necessarily break out the mold and you are like if some people say i've got cancer well you can say well i got it because my mum had it well actually it's our environment that seems to shape us more than anything and that gives us the empower to really change our lives this is it and it's by what we're talking about epigenetics like you literally turn on the environment turns your genes on and off and i think we have that internal control where we can turn those genes on and off it was it was really for for me i think the power of belief is so underestimated like there's so many books out there about belief and like the power of belief is a thing to behold like if it, it, the placebo effect like psychophysiologically speaking if you get a placebo you believe you've gotten a placebo and your body actually creates chemicals and and enzymes that create what the tablet you think is in the tablet that has the power of belief like it actually changes your bodily structure it's like joe dispenza we touched on that beforehand as well he believed he was going to heal himself and he did he he, he tapped into that that subconscious level, that that really inner power. And I think we can get too caught up in science. Like I'm doing a PhD in the Institute of Neuroscience. It's very science-based, really hard science. But I think we have to be open up to the idea that we're very we're a very young race in terms of understanding science. Like we still can't see electricity, but we know it's real. But so we shouldn't be dismissing some of these psychological phenomena or, or spiritual phenomena. Like I'm a great believer in energy. Like when I walk into a room, you can feel the energy. When I'm doing a talk and the energy goes low, I can feel that and I can lift it back up by saying certain things. You can feel the energy being lifted. Science can't explain these things, but we innately know these things are real. So I think we have to be open to these kind of forces as well. We don't yet understand them, but we've got to be open to these ideas as well. Like There's lots of stuff going on that we don't understand. Yeah, for sure. When you tap into that, it kind of just blows your mind a little bit. You're like, wow. Like your wow. just your story can blow a lot of people's mind to think, wow. Um, but then when you tie it in with the journey you've gone on and the other stuff, it's just, it, it gives a lot of, I wouldn't say like hope's a great word, but just inspiration. And um, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's phenomenal hearing it. And um, what, what are your thoughts? Um, just because I've, I've got it on my notes there, thinking um, in terms of like treatment for stuff now, like I believe that like, like psychedelics are becoming quite uh, prominent now in terms of particular yeah. healthcare and have to, in terms, you know, psilocybin can help, you know, with anxiety and depression. I believe there's MDMA a phase three clinical trial to help Iraqi and Afghan war veterans and helping them really like in the course of a few um, a few sessions are really having a real massive impact. Yeah, and I'll be honest, I don't know. I, this is something I want to study, uh, get into more depth of with the with the get into more depth in with the psychedelics and stuff like that. I don't know the ins and outs of this stuff, and I do have to research it more. But my my initial thoughts on that would be the status quo is not working. Like it really isn't working. Like treatment for anxiety, 
CBT is good for peripheral anxiety, social anxiety, but it's only if people put the work in, like it's, you've got to put the work in as well. But I think like for, for deep addictions, deep depression, there's some great research I know going on with people with clinical depression and they're getting some great relief through the psychedelics. But So I, I think nothing should be off the table. And just because you're using a psychedelic to treat something that could be problematic around drugs and stuff like that, like all addictions as well, people, people probably think it's mad to treat addiction with a drug. Like, but, but basically addiction, I want to come back to all the time. Addiction isn't addiction. Addiction mostly is avoiding something. You're avoiding anxiety. You're avoiding trauma. You're avoiding something in your life. So there's an underlying, it's just a symptom of something that's un, underlying that. So I think these psychedelics, and I know people that have done them and have gone on beautiful spiritual journeys uh, 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 and great things have happened. So I'm very, very open to the idea of this, but I don't really know the ins and outs of it right now, to be honest. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, because I listened to Russell Brand. He's like a similar, um, you know, history to yourself, drug addict. Um, and he talks about the likes of, you know, psychedelics and open trauma, but he would never engage in himself because he thinks, because he's an addict, he's scared of what that might take him down. And what your thoughts, would you feel the same in that regard? Yeah, I would. I would. And you know what? As an addict, the intrigue is there. So I want to do it. And I'd say if Russell was here now, he would say the exact same thing. He wants to do it, but he's scared of doing it. And that's exactly where I am as well. So it's, it's really for me, uh, I, I always go back to this as well. It's, it's, I don't have the, my anxiety has gone. I, and, and when I do get normal anxiety now for doing public speaking and stuff like that, I have the tools to swat it away. Like I really have a great tool set for coping with my anxiety. So I'm not worried about it in the slightest. So I don't think I would have an issue with it. I really don't. I think um, it would be okay. But there's just that little fear is there that, that, that you just don't know. And I think, I think when you're talking about psychedelics, like I've done a lot of acid in my time as well, especially in the early years, it's probably the most powerful drug out there. Like it's really powerful. It warps your mind. It brings you to a different place. There's parts of my book, there's, there's parts of the book where I write about my experience on acid and stuff like that on bad trips. And it's really some powerful stuff. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to play around with it. I wouldn't take it lightly, I have to say. But it's, um, it's, 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 yeah, I think I'd be on, I'd be on his lines, I think. And I think the fear, the fear is there, yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, you don't need it because you've, you know, I think for some people might be wave earlier on and they would use it to help them come around. Because I've heard people, supposedly psilocybin mushrooms is completely non-addictive. You can't, supposedly you cannot get addictive on psilocybin mushrooms compared to say cocaine or heroin, which would be yeah. highly addictive. Um so are you going to jump in? Yeah, no, definitely. No, I'd agree with that. And it's like um, some drugs that just have, haven't got that addictive quality. So, so just because we're a drug doesn't make them, like not all drugs are the same. So I'd be totally on board with that. I really would. Yeah. Um, but like you say, you know, you're, you're at this point where it's like, why, why risk it? You know, you're, you've already yeah. come so far and it's like, not even just risk it. It's like, why bother? You know, you're already on a roll. And you've used the tools that you've needed through mindfulness, exercise, power visualization, doing that, you know, each day and building on it and seeing how things unfold. It's, um, it's pretty amazing. One thing I'd like to talk about, so your book, which is bonus time. <clears throat> um, you tell us a little bit about, I know you touched on it in terms of, um, you know, some of the, the sections and stuff, but how, how long did it take? I'm, I'm really interested to know about the process of writing a book, how long it took you. I bet you couldn't even imagine seven years ago that you would be producing a book. No, no. And when I went back to college in 2014, 
2014. My biggest uh, worry was, uh, like, I, I was, I, I was pretty smart in school. I wouldn't be an overly smart, but I was pretty smart in school. But English was not my strong point. And I remember going to college thinking I'm going to struggle with writing. But um, I sort of had no bad habits because I never really had a writing practice as such. So I became an academic writer and I published a few papers. So that sort of set me on the, on the stall to, to, produce, to start writing. So when I got into the book then, it was a, it was a different kind of game. Like um, I, I, there's a guy over in Ireland called Niall Breslin. Brezzy is his nickname. So he, 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 um, he's, um, he sort of, he's in a band. He was a rugby player, sort of a famous guy in Ireland. And um, he asked me to write a book with him. He had his own struggles. So we we're going to write a book about mindfulness together. He, I met him. He was a student on the course. So that got me into the writing world and gave me the young idea. And he says, why don't you write a blog? So I wrote my first blog. It would have been 2017, 2018. And I had this bug for writing blogs and writing about different things. So that the, 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 the book with him fell through. We didn't go, to, go ahead with that in the end. But the publishers were really keen on me writing me memoir. So I, I'd written a few blogs at this stage, and I was really bitten by the, blog, by the bug of writing. And, um, yeah, basically, I went out of hard. Like, I, I always think I have this addict inside me still that just gets upset. I can't moderate. I'm all in. Like, you know, I'm all in. So I went all in with that book. I done the proposal. I went into the depths of the book proposal. I got the structure ready. I'm really got a structure around. That was, that was an advantage of mine. And basically, when the process started, I had only four months to write the book because I got in late. But by the time we got everything over the line, I had four months to write the book. And it was pretty much over the whole of the summer. And I was really struggling at the start. I was started writing the book and I was, sh- I was telling people what happened to me. And somebody said something to me that really dropped. Don't tell them, show them. So what I said in my head was, right, I'm going to show people. I'm going to put pictures into people's heads and show them and bring them on that journey with me. And it happened to me. The first two chapters I had to do again, but the third chapter was when I read the book really start coming together. That's the chapter I wrote about falling in love. And it's called Fall in Love. And it's basically the whole chapter is my not first night down heroin. Me and a couple of kids on a bus gone to my friend's gaff and I bring them into my outer world, my inner world. I bring them all on that journey with me. They'll be in the sink watching me spew chunks of uh, vomit into the sink, stuffing it down the plug hole, all of this kind of stuff. And I brought people on the journey with me. And it was, I learned how to write a book while writing a book. So I'd say if I wrote it again, it would be better. You know, that's the unfortunate, the unfortunate fact about it. But it was really, it was really for me as well. If anyone's thinking of writing a book, I would get, there's a book, reading other books is really brilliant. And there's two books that I'd highly recommend. They're very short as well. So On Writing Well by William Zinzer. The first 15 minutes of that on audio book, I listen to that once a month. It's 15 minutes and it tells you how to write. And it basically breaks it all down. It's simplicity, small sentences, small words, small paragraphs. Keep it simple. Write for a 12-year-old. Keep it super simple. Don't try to get too fancy with your words. That's one of the key points. And then in another book by Stephen Pressfield is called um, The Art, The War of Art. And it's basically about resistance. He talks about resistance of being this being that stops you doing your art. And he's a writer himself. And, and the things that you will get in your way like are incredible. Some days you'll go to write and nothing will come into your head. But you just have to 
force yourself through that resistance. Sometimes you might do 100 words, the next day might be 1,000 words, but just force yourself through that. And them two books really got me through the writing process, and I just kept on pushing, pushing, pushing. Like I said, when I got clean, I show up every single day, so that's something I always try to do. So no matter what's going on, I, I don't let me feelings define me decisions. So if I don't feel like writing, I write anyway. There was a great little metaphor I heard when I was doing psychology. It was, um, it was a theory of emotion. It was basically this little caption in the book, and it was this little uh, little board, little board singing in a tree. And this man was walking underneath the board and he says, oh, uh, you're, you're, you're singing because you're happy. And the little board looks down, don't be silly. He says, I'm happy because I'm singing. And what, what, the, what that little thing was saying was that theory of emotion says that your actions define your feelings, not the other way around. So I always try to act as if, act me way into feeling certain ways. So I don't feel like I do it anyway. And then all of a sudden you're 20 minutes in and you're flying along. So that would be one of the big things that I'd say if you're planning on writing a book, it's a huge task, but it's like everything, like a marathon, one step at a time, like eating an elephant, one bite at a time. But just keep on showing up. And I think that's, that's it. if you do that, you will get there. I love that. That's great advice. And that's especially the thing where you're saying about show me, don't tell me. You know, you, you know the best books when you are, you know, you get lost in the imagination and you can visualize it all. And in a way, that's a form of mindfulness, I find, when you are really yeah. visualizing and going along on the story. But that's beautiful. Really nice. Yeah, it was. I, I don't know who told me. I have to thank. If I ever thank him, I have to thank them because I owed him for the book. It was a game changer for me. Another, another big part of the book as well for me, especially if anyone's writing a memoir. There's a, a senator over in Ireland. She's a good friend of mine called Lynn Rowan, and she basically said, "Speak your truth." Lynn speaks her truth, like no holds barred, and she says, "Speak your truth. Hold nothing back." So I put everything in there. I mean, bringing me mom on drug deals orifices of people all of these different things like bodily stuff like i left nothing out and i think that really rings true when people read the book they say thank you for your honesty and i think they can feel it on the pages we, we feel more so look back to that energy stuff as well people are reading your book but they feel the authenticity they feel that energy they feel your truth and it's just what we're, we're, we're perceptive of a lot more than we think we're aware of and i think that comes true in writing as well so um, you've had quite the journey with your mum then by the sound of it. Your mum was extremely proud of you now, you know, published author, lecturing. Yeah. Um, but then at one point you were pulling on drug deals. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And my mum my wouldn't be one to be over. It's super affectionate. So I'm so proud of you. It would take a lot for her to say that. And she said it to me on a few occasions. And it meant, it meant so much more. And I, I, I often, I love the phrase like, uh, addiction isn't a spectator sport. Eventually the whole family got to play. Well, so was recovery. The whole family have got to play. Like I had two brothers in addiction when I got clean. One of them's completely clean now. The other one's doing great. Uh, the other people that had alcohol issues in my family haven't got alcohol issues anymore. I have a great relationship with my man today. Like I don't make her cry anymore. Like I only make her laugh. And we talk about meditation. We talk about life. So like the jo Johan Harry is a great line as well. Sobriety is not the opposite of addiction. Connection is. And I love that. Like I was disconnected from life, disconnected from people, but I'm connected to people now. I have a lovely girlfriend now as well. And life is just, life is just special now today. It really is. And th that connection feels like the opposite of addiction for me. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a absolutely amazing hearing, hearing your story. So I understand when the book went out, did the book go out at the beginning of COVID and then it was kind of, it was all trapped in the warehouse or something. 
It did, it did indeed. So with the 29th of March was the um, was the book launch and I was due to go on, it would have been the equivalent of, let's say, the Terry Wogan show or something like that in Ireland. It's the Late Late Show with Ryan Turbley. I think it has like 800,000 viewers for Ireland, like a huge audience. Like it's a big show over here. It's the main one to get on. So I was due to go on that show on the Friday, book launch, all other TV things all set up. And that week, I basically got news, Ryan Torbley's cancelled, all the other TV shows cancelled, your book launch is cancelled. And I said, okay, right, fair enough. Then, then I was like, then I got an hour later, I got another phone call, oh, um, East, all the bookshops are closing as well. So it's like, your book isn't going to be in bookshops. And I said, okay, at least we can sell online books. Oh, got a call an hour later, oh, they're all trapped in the warehouse. You can't even sell books online. And, but here, here's the funny thing, Rob, right? I remember just, we we're talking about self-observation, right? So there's a great there's a there's a there's a great line from Viktor Frankl. And um, you know Viktor Frankl wrote that book Man's Search for Meaning, an amazing, amazing book. And there's a great line in that book that Viktor Frankl, I think he captures the essence of mindfulness, but the essence of self-observation for me. And it's between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is your chance to choose that response, and there lies your growth and your freedom. For me, Self-observation increases that space between stimulus and response because I become the observer of my bodily sensation. So I got triggered that day. You know, everything I put my blood, sweat and tears into was all fell apart in the space of a day. So and I was told all these little phone calls. And, but I remember feeling in my body, this is crap. I remember that the sort of all the stress of it. But I remember catching it because I was, self, I was practicing self-observation. And I didn't react. I didn't wallow in self-pity. And I remember just started smiling to myself and saying, oh my God, isn't this amazing that I'm catching this stuff and I am able to smile at the fact that, 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 that I'm in such a good place. And then I had this realization that I'm walking the talk of my book. And you know what? That was even more rewarding than going on the Late Late Show, than going on having the book launch and all, to realize that this stuff was internalized within me. And from that moment then, I, I, I didn't worry about book sales. I just started focusing on people struggling with COVID-19. I started doing talks in school, online talks. And it's turned into a fantastic, like I've, I launched online courses. I do a course on self-talk, the stories that we tell ourselves, and I bring the science into that. And it's turned into a business for me now as well. So, and I still have the book as well. So it's really, it really by, by focusing on what I could control, my reaction to the situation, uh, it, it turned into a, into, into a great, a great experience. When, when you say that, it reminds me of, uh, I listened to quite a bit of Ram Dass. And, okay. And he would talk about, you know, he would go to India and he'd have his guru and stuff. And uh, sometimes like there'd be certain instances where, you know, he'd sort of think, oh, I'm enlightened now, I'm spiritual. And then other things would show up. And then he would yeah. catch himself as he's just about to react. Or sometimes he would react and then he'd start laughing and going, ah, that's my guru. You know, he's, he's put this, these obstacles in front of me to keep me, keep me on it. Because life's going to be full of lessons, even though where you're at now, you know, you're still going to have challenges, aren't you? There's no doubt. This, this is it. Curveballs. Life will happen. Curveballs are inevitable. This is, this is it. This is it, yeah. And COVID-19 is a curveball for, for a lot of us. For a lot of us, lockdown, it's not over yet. We don't know what the end And I think, I think as we come out of COVID-19, whenever that is, I think we'll start seeing, like, it's like COVID-19 was the earthquake, but there's going to be a lot of tremors. And some of them tremors could be pretty damn big. I think there could be a lot of struggle and bigger struggles going on behind closed doors that we don't know of yet. So it'll be interesting to see what the mental health is of people coming out of this and how everyone's going to react. 
Yeah, you can definitely see it, can't you? I think, yeah. sadly, you hear stuff like suicides are up, um, depression's up. You know, you can see how it's going to have a big impact on people. They had, the life was, they had so much certainty. Like, it felt like certainty. And then everything yeah. just gets, whether the job, the health, you know, even just having those weekly routines that you might have, going to certain classes, seeing friends, just gone. And then you trap yeah. indoors for a few months. I also think there's many great lessons from it. I'm take, doing my best to take the positives from it because, you know, 100%. I think most most of us have just been going at such pace without maybe sometimes realizing the direction, and we're kind of doing it just to keep speed with many others because that's what everyone else is doing. But as soon as the breakers are put on, we're like, ah, maybe I don't need that stuff. Why? Why am I doing this? Why am I chasing after that? What for? Just for other people to, um, you know like me in a way or, or to approve of, of what I'm doing. So I think there's a great awakening potentially happening during this phase. A hundred percent. It's such an opportunity. Like it's a reboot. It's giving people an opportunity to, 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 to have a reboot and to reevaluate their lives. I, I, I'd love to get into it. I wanted to talk about this tool earlier on, but it's a nice spot to talk about this tool. It's probably my favorite tool in my life that's guided my life more than anything else. So I've talked about my purpose, like to show people that change is possible. I chatted about my values earlier on as well. So my values are very important to me. Before COVID-19, my values were industry, accountability, boldness, inner peace, lots of different things, open-mindedness, and of course, set of values. And then my goals pre-COVID-19 was basically my PhD, the book launch, my speaking career. So I knew what my values were, I knew what my goals were, and I knew what my purpose was. And I actually implemented this little mantra from the Great Britain Rowing Team. And in the 2000 Olympics, the Great Britain Rowing Team had this mantra, will it make the boat go faster? So for every decision that they had to make, they asked themselves, will it make our boat go faster? If it did, they said yes. If it didn't, they said no. So if they're asked to go out for a few drinks, wouldn't make the boat go faster. So they said no. And it gave them certainty. It gave them clarity. And clarity is a huge value of mine. So I developed this mantra. because I developed a, 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 a variant of that mantra to give me clarity in my life. So I, I developed a metaphor based on that, which is based on my purpose, values, and goals. So I'd say to myself, will it make my boat go faster? My goals boat, my purpose boat, my values boat. So for every decision I had to make, right, will it make me PhD go faster? Me speaking career, will it make me book launch go faster? And I'd make me decision, yes, no decision based on that, depending on what it was. And of course, the reason why I brought the values in, because it's not all about my, my agenda, my priorities, my goals. So the, the values were important as well, like to be compassionate to people, to spend time with others as well. So that sort of gave me the balance of that. But what I found in COVID-19 was that my goals changed. My goals completely changed. I had two major goals, three major goals in COVID-19. My self-care, because I had to look after myself. If you don't look after yourself, you can't look after anyone else anyway. So that was my number one goal. Number two goal was the mental health of loved ones. And my third goal was my speaking career, but it was now helping people online, schools, colleges for free. I've done lots of free talks and I've done lots of webinars and stuff for free, sharing the tools that I talk about. So they were my three goals. My values changed as well. So I, I really realized my values, really like boldness and accountability and in industry, they're great values, they still are. But all of a sudden, flexibility, patience, compassion, connection, they were elevated to the fore. And that's what happened. So for me, the rudder of the boat changed. And, and, and it was a really important lesson for me that we need to pivot in these changing times. And if you're, if you're successful with an old framework and it was very material, very goal-orientated, we, it's, we're uncertain now. We don't know if we're going to have jobs. We don't know what's going on. So I think it gives us, it's like that, it gives us a way to pivot, a way to check ourselves and an opportunity to learn. Because I think every situation is an opportunity to learn. 
But difficult challenges are the best opportunities that are out there. And I think that's what COVID-19 can be if you think about it in that context. That's amazing to, to hear. It's a great, a great way to um, it's, you know, segment stuff. And I love your clarity, the way things are. I'm, I'm interested then, you know, do you give yourself reflective time each day? Like, I'm interested to know what you, do you have a set structure for your day? You know, and it sounds like you must like journal or have notepads about because that stuff you're talking about, you know, it might just swirl around in the head, but it seems like you have to be really clear with it. Yeah, you got you got to put it down on paper. There's a journalist when the wipers for the soul. Like it really is. You've got to put it down on paper. It's something I talk about a lot. So I would have a very uh, clear morning routine. So I'd start my day. I I, I, have a, I have a morning routine, and that's after the, the acronym Mavic N A V I G, and that stands for meditation, affirmations, visualization, inner child, and gratitude. And it's only a couple of minutes each. I don't go mad on it. It take me ten minutes. Would that be my morning routine? And it's, 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 for me, it's like meditations are the primes me to be more focused throughout the day. So it's more of a primer. And affirmations are prime me just like language is a vehicle for emotion. So my affirmation is simple is I am, I am positive, happy, energetic, and carefree. I am positive, happy, energetic, and carefree. And the science shows that this stuff works. Like a robust science shows that language is a vehicle for emotion. So visualization, I'd visualize the where I'm going to go that day. If I'm doing a talk, I'd visualize myself being emotive. Now, I don't, talk, I don't visualize myself winning the lottery. I only visualize things that I can have an impact on. So it really it primes me to take both action throughout the day the inner child work is me just visualizing me inner child and I, I just tell me the, the infant self that was wounded years ago I, I hold my cradle and I visualize and say I have you now everything will be okay so it's like healing the body keeps the scar I'm trying to I'm trying to even up that scar that's what I'm trying to do there take that trauma away and then the gratitude is just being grateful for what I have in my life so I start my day off with them practices I would love to have journaling as part of my morning routine, but at the moment, it's not. Now, I would journal sporadically um, throughout the year. I, I do a big monster mammoth journaling session every uh, New Year's Eve. That's me, New Year's Eve practice, two-hour journaling sessions. So I, I, I started the New Year's reflections for this year that around different things, and it was around a connection, three different ways of connecting and stuff. And a lot of it's really come true, which was interesting. So what you've got to answer your question more specifically, you've got to give yourself that reflective time. Like I know my values, I know my goals because I reflected on these things. Now I'm a blogger as well, I blog. So because when I write about things, I'm reflecting on stuff as well. When I wrote, like I, I remember saying to someone, geez, I haven't done much journaling this year. And then I realized I wrote a memoir. It's like the Everest of journaling. Like I just says, oh my God, I'm journaling up for the next 10 years. So there was a lot of reflection around that. And I think clear writing is clear thinking. There, there you go. Jeff Bezos out of Amazon doesn't read anything from anybody unless they've written about it. If he doesn't read what they've written, he tells them to throw it in the bin. But he says, don't talk to me until you've written about it. So when you write about stuff and you journal about stuff, you really create clarity in your mind. And I think what's really important is the questions we ask ourselves as well. Really, really important. For anyone interested, I, I, all my blogs are on my website as well. So it's brianpenny.com. You're probably giving it at the end of the show. But in regards to questions, there's a great blog in there, and it's eight questions you should occasionally ask yourself. And it's like questions like, what are you constantly avoiding? 
If you say yes to this, what are you saying no to? So really these core questions and they're great ways of teasing out these reflective thinking process. And I'm just saying, just do a brain dump. Scribble a question at the top of the page and just let it flow. Don't be, just start. Some people say, I don't know how to journal. Journal is writing, that's all it is. Write down what's in your head, let it flow and let it go from there. Some of my best journaling sessions, I didn't really know what was going to come out on the page until it came out. And I think that's, that's the essence of reflective thinking, like really clear reflective thinking. Thinking. That sounds incredible and I, I love that you know the five things that you do each morning i'm interested to know how long does that take do you get up at the same time each morning or are you kind of a bit fluid with with the way things are right so pre-cause what i did the, um, the, my girlfriend right at the moment we're together about six months now and and um, pre-covid 19 um what you call it i was very rigid i went to bed at nine o'clock i got up at 4 50 every single day i was way too rigid in my life i was getting into all of the and here i worked i got loads done and i was very energetic this stuff works if you get consistent this stuff works but when you're living in the real world and you're in a relationship, I had to bend on that kind of stuff. I'm a COVID-19 kicking in as well. So I've and the gyms were closed, so I couldn't go to the gym first thing in the morning as well. So I really pivoted, pivoted around. I have been flexible around that as well. But I, I, I get up in the morning around seven o'clock every morning now, and I will do my morning routine straight away. It would take anything, like I can do a quicker one. So I probably do like a five to seven minute meditation. Then I will do like the other elements of that, like the, um, the affirmations takes me 60 seconds at best. I'd visual, do a little visualization for another 60 seconds to two minutes. Sometimes I might do a little bit longer. The inner child work, another 60 seconds. Gratitude, another 60 seconds. And a key piece of, of gratitude and visualization is like if I'm visualizing what I want to do, I want to write my second book on an Alpine Lodge. That's something I've been visualizing for ages. But I feel myself in the Alps. I smell the pine leaves. I smell me coffee on the balcony. I've been there climbing them mountains in the morning, going skiing. I've been there. And it's, it's, it's um, with gratitude as well. I'm being grateful for what's in my life. It could be my family, my nephew smiling. I'm being grateful for these things. And with visualization and gratitude, I'm visualizing that the things I'm grateful for as well. But from my lessons in neuroscience, if I'm, visual, if I'm having a, a great moment, if I'm over in the Alps, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm having a great time. The visual cortex is taking a picture of this environment saying, sends a, a message to the nucleus accumbens in the brain that's, and, the, and the VTA, the other areas of the brain. It basically says, this is a great, this is, a, this is great fun. Come back here because it's, it's good for you. And this is like a survival mechanism, like back thousands of years ago in the wild, we find food, nice fruit, right? Remember this spot, it's good. This will help your survival. So that's the way the brain works. So you will basically have a dopamine response, giving you pleasure if you're in an, an environment that you like. But if you're visualizing these things, up to 80% of them same neurons still fire and still give you them pleasures. So basically, before I leave my room in the morning, I've given myself a biological injection of positivity before I've even left the room. Like the first words of my book are, I'm the happiest person I know. <laughs> I genuinely put 90% of that down to my morning routine. <laughs> oh, you, you, no doubt you seem you seem like the happiest person i know that's for sure. <laughs> listening to you talk and stuff and that's the thing it's about mindset and it's about putting yourself in that state we um went on a tony robbins event a few years ago unleashed the power of him spent four days first night walked across fire when you do that you feel like you can right. do anything in your life and one thing that comes to mind is he would do this thing about visualization. He's like, right, close, got everyone, like 8,000 of us, everyone close your eyes. And now imagine picking up yourself, picking up an apple and putting that apple in your mouth. 
and biting the, biting the apple and you've not got an apple in your hand but all the saliva on your tongue is starting to come alive you're literally tasting it so that just goes to show the power of the mind and, yeah. and what what's possible yeah it's crazy it's crazy and i think a thread that's come out through our chat now and for the last hour has really been the power of the mind the power of belief like there's there's bigger processes going on than what science can comprehend like i am you could call me a scientist at the end of the day but it's i think we need to be open to the idea that we're very, very young, the human race, in our, in, our, in our knowledge about the mind and the brain and all of these kinds of phenomena. Yeah, we definitely are. And what I love as well about your morning routines, even the one where you get up at half four, like I, I just think when you do that, like the amount of stuff you'd have done by 9 a.m., like where you could be. Some people might be getting, you know, just getting into work at nine or they're up and they've had the piece of toast, coffee, sat down at the desk. You could have written like two blog posts in that time. Yeah, yeah, it was it was crazy, and I, I find you have to find your sweet spot as well. But most people do have to have that creative part, uh, creative juices flowing early in the morning, and that's what it was for me. I was only talking to someone about that recently. I need to. I, I if, if there's one reason why I'd love to go back to that early morning time, it's because I'm very creative at that time of the morning. Like you can get so much done, and you feel like you're winning the day. Like it's not about beating the competition, but there, there is a sense of like everyone else is in bed, and I'm like pouring stuff out here. So come like ten, eleven o'clock, you nearly have the rest of the day off. Like you know what I mean? You've gotten so much done. <laughs> Totally. Um, when, when you say that, it takes me back. Like I do a mindfulness uh, technique. I do transcendental meditation. Yeah, um, yeah. They would be up at a certain time and they would talk about, you know, if we all do it collectively at a certain time, like early in the morning, it's like when everything, to, when, every, when the world's asleep almost, that's what it feels like. Yeah. And there's so much, yeah. quiet. and I think what I found early on in COVID, them first few months, I felt like I was feeling that quiet all the time, all day, because we, you go out walking, we don't live far from a busy road, and it was dead. Any time of the day, completely dead. And yeah. before about seeing the beauty and stuff, I was really seeing the beauty in more things. It was like, I'd gone on these walks many times, but I was seeing these trees, what it felt like for the first time. I'm like, yeah. wow, am I just seeing this now? And I think it's because the world switched off for a bit. I, yeah. I also, also get that at certain times of year, say when it's Christmas. It's like I can feel the collective happiness. If people don't get me wrong, it's a sad time as well for a lot of people. But you can yeah. tend to feel it. Everyone's off work at least on Christmas Day and you know yeah. a few days, and you can tend to feel into that. So I love that idea. I think hearing you getting up early is inspiring me because sometimes I have the intentions to get up. But I'll I'll continue late into the night. But I'd rather do it in the morning than yeah be on a computer at nine ten o'clock at night. I want to switch off. Yeah, the, the, the thing for that is I have a little trick for that. As soon as I catch myself doing that, it's, you're negotiating with your own mind. So as soon as I catch myself negotiating with myself, will I, won't I, stay in bed, do that, say, right, one, two, it's Mel Robbins, five, four, three, two, one, real. I just catch that, I catch myself negotiating, I say, five, four, three, two, one, go, and I'm not allowed to not go. I have to go at five and just jump up. Now, it's nearly horrible when you catch it because you know you have to jump up and go. So it's like, oh, no, I'm going to have to do it. But it's a great, it's a great trick. It really works. <laughs> And that's great because as well, because in firm, for you, you know, it's down to you what you do each day. You don't turn up, okay, you lecture and you'll, you know, you'll have set times to be in. Um, but most of the time, you're probably making your own days and your own time frames in a way. And you're the one that has to motivate yourself. You know, you're not getting pulled along by a, a general nine to five job. So to have that self-discipline and that motivation to make sure that you're on it gets you way, you know, gets you where you want to go. And I think because you've got so many, you've probably got a million ideas, the things that you want to do the next 10, 20 years. 
Um, yeah. And you're like, I want to do them all. I don't want to. I don't want to regret. Like you say, you've got this second chance at life, and you're like, you want to, yeah. you want to wring every little drop of that life out and see how magic it can take. How much magic there is in it. This is it. This is it. That's a lovely metaphor. I want. I, I miss fifteen years, and although like I don't regret. I, I don't. I don't dwell in the past. I want to wring every drop out of the years that are left. I really do. Yeah. I love that metaphor. <laughs> We're talking about things you got in the future. I believe that you've got, is it going to be part of a TV documentary about your yeah. sort of life? Yeah, so that's pretty cool, actually. So we shot it there a couple of weeks ago. So it's going to be released in, uh, in January. It's called Fina is the name of the show. So it's a series and it's called, that stands for, in Irish, it stands for Witness. So it's witnessing someone's life. So that was an amazing experience. I've done a bit of work behind the camera now already um, on documentaries and stuff like that. But um, it was like we really, we went into factories and we got born and we had fires going. We really made it very, um, very. it was very arty. And we, we went to the, the Smock Alley Theatre over here. And it's just, the, the director came in and she, she's brilliant. Mia Mularkey, her name is, she's amazing. So it's, he didn't do scenes with me, but he had actors smoking heroin, pretending they were me at the fire, doing petrol, because that's what I'd done as a kid. So we have all these art and... Um, archives of train spotting music going a footage of me it's I'm, i haven't seen it yet but the little clips i know of i'm really looking forward to i think it could be a really arty funky documentary so and it's really just talking about my life it's going to be a witness in my life tr- throughout that so so that's out in january so i'm really super psyched to see that I bet you are how does something like that come about and some of the opportunities is it just people have somehow heard your story from you sharing your message yeah, it's really crazy. I've great momentum at the minute, Rob, I have to say. So people are just sort of, I, I, like even there the other day, like I just got a Google alert saying you're in the news. I didn't even know what it was. And here it is here, actually. So this the, the little magazine and it's like a gritty but gripping memoir of addiction. So some guy obviously read me memoir and he's, it's in the business post and he wrote about it. So it's like people would read that. And so for the, the, the TV documentary, I just got an email one day from your website and it basically just says, oh, we'd love to do a TV documentary in your life. Can you, can you give us a phone call? So he says, yeah, sounds cool. Let's do that. So it just really comes from word of mouth. And I think, I think that there's a great book that I read and it's called Made to Stick. And there's, some, there's, there's an acronym in that book um, called Success. And ideas that stick go with this acronym Success. And S stands for simplicity. The E for is, uh, the, or the U is for unexpectedness. C is for credibility and concreteness, the two C's. A is for emotion and S is for stories. So when, when ideas have all of them elements in it, they tend to stick. So obviously I have the story, it, it exudes emotion. I have the credibility because I'm now doing a PhD. I like to keep, con- keep things concrete. I, you, you mentioned clarity there and me too. So there's concreteness within that as well. People don't expect, when I'm chatting to them and I talk about being, if I'm a PhD, I said I was a heroin addict for years, so the unexpectedness is there as well. And simplicity, I, I wouldn't say I'm simple, but I like to keep things simple. I probably overcomplicate things. That's the bit I'm missing. But it's just, I think there's just something about, you, you need to sell yourself in a certain way that sort of, um, that has authenticity as well. It's uh, is really important. But, if you have them elements as well, I, I think, I, to be honest, I don't know where the momentum is coming from, but I think it's something got to do with that. And I think the authenticity rings true. Like a mantra that I live my life by is, be true to your wonderfully weird self. You'll attract what you want and repel what you don't. And what I found is, like I've reached out to some of the leading CEOs in Ireland and loads of them got back to me and ended up me launching a speaking career. Like I'm going into these really dry corporate 
uh, banking institutions who are not, they're not dry at all. They'd be perceived as that. And I'm going as a former heroin addict doing courses and doing online talks and all. Because, but it was because I was true to me wonderfully weird self. I didn't go in there trying to be all corporate. I went in there as me. I'm the happiest person I know. I'm ridiculously passionate and mad for this and mad for that. That's who I went in as. And they brought me in as that. So what I would say to people is just be true to who you are. Like, don't be trying to fit in into pieces because it's it's not a happy place to be either and i think that that's that i think that's really helped me the answer is i don't know that's that's my thoughts on that <laughs> that's fascinating it really is um and, and hearing it all that and i feel privileged just to sit down here really for 90 minutes and to, get, <laughs> Cheers, to you know absorb your energy and um and hear about your story because a lot of the time i'm asking stuff um I'm intrigued because I'm thinking what other people might want to know, but I actually want to know myself, like, you know, writing a book, your daily rituals, all them things which can kind of um, hone your mind, hone your skills. Because one of the things I talk about in this this podcast is about encouraging people to become the best selves, to acknowledging who we are right now. Don't discredit who we are now. Be grateful we are now but realize that there's more for us to come. You know, even, even if you're 80 odd, you know, you don't have to, like I had someone on this podcast who was in his eighties and he went back to uni and did his master's when he was in his eighties in fine arts and goes to show anyone at any age can change the direction of your life. And you've done it pretty early on compared to Jim, who was in that age. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's really good. And he's a friend of ours as well. And when we chat with him, because he's still got, he, in fine art, he's um, he's very much like, a, he can see that inner child in him, that, that childlike quality. You know, he hasn't just, you know, hung his, um, his hat on the door and said, like, you know, I'm going quietly into the night. It's like, no, I'm going to, you know, he's doing exhibitions all over the, all over Manchester and wow. really part of all like local community action groups and stuff. So to go show any, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are and, and it's that purpose, which you really, that's something that's come through strongly what you talk about, that fuels what you do each day. And with you tie that on with the things that you do with your rituals each day, that just, that just fuels you even more, keeps you going. Yeah, I want to meet that guy. What's his name? His name's Jim Giles. Um, Jim Giles, I keep that in mind. That's, that's, that's what I aspire to be. That should be all our dream, that the child's still alive at that age. Like, wow, that, that's just amazing. That's incredible. And I saw one of your quotes, actually, I think it's on Instagram, which is like, is it the only limits in your life are the ones you put on yourself? So dream big and be bold. Be bold, yeah. Bold. Boldness has power. I think it's Van Gogh. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. I love, I love boldness. <laughs> you got, you got to be bold. And it's, it's like boldness in the sense of just take a chance. Like if you don't play, play, play. We've all been dealt a set, a, a, a set of cards in life, like just play your hand, like be bold, play your hand, take a few risks. I think it's, it, I think it's really, really important. Like I think society tries to put us in a box, but just take a chance, play, play your hand. I think that's, that's maybe a big message from message of mine. That seems like a really great way to kind of, you know, bring, bring our chat to, to a close and, um, and to inspire listeners. Like I say, it's inspired me. I'm sure it inspired many others to, by our chat, but also to find out more about you. You've got your online courses, you've got your book. Um, 
you've got other things coming up. So is there anything else that you want to, in terms of if people have wanted to check out more of you, what's the best way and what have you kind of got in the pipeline that they can potentially get involved? Yes. So basically for me, if anyone wants to, so everything is directed through my website. So it's www.brianpenny.com. That's P-E-N-N-I-E. So my blogs, I'll be a big time blogger. All of my blog, anything I talk about, I've blogged about and I have videos in there as well and lots of the stuff that I talk about. And my online courses are in there as well. My book is in there as well. And then my week, I have a weekly newsletter where I, I regular blogs and different things that I'm doing, updates on my online courses. So if you're interested in any of the courses, I do lots of free webinars as well. So I, I try to give back as much as I can as well for free. I think it's really important. So if you sign up to, me, to the newsletter, you get the weekly updates there, but everything literally goes through the website. Great. I'm sure to include all the links as well to stuff you talked about. And you saw about some incredible books and, and people in there as well. So I'll, uh, I'll go back and make sure and make notes of all them. And I'm sure that again, because that's the thing, a power of a good book, you know, that can, like you talked about Eckhart Tolle and, um, and I've read a book uh, called Michael Singer's book, which is the surrender experiment. Um, oh, have you, have you read, have you read his other one? I read both of his, his other one, uh, Untethered Soul. Yeah. Incredible like powerful powerful yeah those two books have almost had more impact on me than any other book and if i only had to read one or two books again i could i finished the surrender experiment and as soon as i finished it it's the first book that i finished and i went straight back to the beginning wow that says a lot and it really that what you talk about you know is surrendering being put yourself in that place of the witness consciousness observe yeah. what's going in and you don't have to play out the same dramas again and you can just catch your mind and be like there you go again it's just the ego that's not who i truly am you know and, and yeah. having that awareness and from them books and the same like at tolly he's you know he's he's really taken off uh, recently and his what he's doing for the world is is phenomenal but yeah i include them books and, and particularly you know what you're doing and get the message out more of what you're doing, but it doesn't seem like you need me to get your message out because, um, you know, you're already flying. The momentum's going, but it all helps, Rob. It all helps. Really, really appreciate it. This, this was fantastic. I loved that. I could have chatting all day, man. Really good. Yeah, I know. I'm looking at the time thinking, yeah, let's keep going. <laughs> let's, keep it, let's keep it tonight. But, well, thanks, Brian. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your time today. Same here, man. Thanks a lot, Rob. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.